news every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiev and it's great being with you here this afternoon. And would you believe it? Rosh Hashanah is already upon us. So I thought it would be appropriate today to perhaps go through some of the customs and what just the sequence, the order of the day, what's happening next week with Rosh Hashanah here. And uh, maybe as we go through that, different thoughts or little inspirations come to mind and I'll be able to share them with you. Just thinking this Saturday night already, we have what's called Tashlich. And in fact, why don't I go a little bit further back? This Shabbos is generally called Shabbos Mavarchim. And Shabbos Mavarchim is the time that we bless the new month. And what is most interesting is that in fact, we are not going to be blowing the Oh, we're not blowing. We're not going to blow the show for Arab Rosh Hashanah. That's true too. And not only won't we be blowing the show for an Arab Rosh Hashanah, which is a thought that comes into my mind, but also we are not going to be reciting the blessings for the month of Tishrei on this Shabbos. We don't bless the month. God blesses the month. Then, of course, Saturday night is Slichot when people wake up or don't go to sleep, and at midnight we go to the shul. And say special penitential prayers that is called Slichot on this Saturday night. As a kid, I used to go to some of the beautiful, magnificent shuls in New York City and hear the chazanim and the choirs. And I'd love to know, perhaps you could send a message into here, which shul and choir will be doing Slichot this year. So those who enjoy the Slichot with a chazan and choir can appreciate it, can sing with them, and hopefully the Singing with the chazan in the customary tunes gives us that inspiration and motivates us to true teshuva, which is, of course, the purpose of why we have a chazan singing in the customary tunes. When I was a student at Yeshiva University, we learned that various tunes in the history of where the liturgy comes from. And you'll notice how wherever you go in the world, the various tunes are so common in the sense that the same tunes that we sing here are sung throughout the universe at Jewish communities. So it would be nice to know which shul here is offering a slicha service with Chazan and choir, and one could enjoy that this Saturday evening. Of course, we wake up every morning extra early for Selichot prayers, so that would be appropriate for one to be part of that in the... Uh, to go and be part of that at, you know, every morning at your shul in your community. Then comes Rosh Hashanah morning. And we want to go through a little bit of the history of Rosh Hashanah. You know that the first Rosh Hashanah ever was actually on a Friday. And I'm talking about the sixth day of the cre- of creation, which is the 25th of El, 5,778 years ago. So, that is when the first Rosh Hashanah took place. That's the creation, the birthday of the world. Now, of course, we know that Tishrei is not the birthday of the world. The 25th of Elul is the birthday of the world. So we don't celebrate Rosh Hashanah on the day of the world's creation. That it would be this Shabbos. In a sense, this Shabbos should really be tomorrow evening. We should be starting Rosh Hashanah because tomorrow evening is the 5,778th anniversary of the world's creation. But indeed, 
the purpose of the world's creation wouldn't be fulfilled if not for the creation of man, which happens six days later. And so we commemorate that next Wednesday evening, which is the first of Tishrei. That is when Jewish time is calculated from, from the day that man was created, because man is the ultimate purpose for this world's existence. And so this becomes the head of the year because the purpose of creation is actually fulfilled by us human beings. We have to realize we're indispensable to God's plan for this world, that us human beings, the whole purpose God created this universe is for us. And we fulfill that purpose by everything we do. And what's interesting is many of the people look at some of the services, many of the prayers in our liturgy during Rosh Hashanah. And a lot of it has to do with the wonderful things that we as human beings want, our personal wealth and our health and all that lovely stuff. And you wonder, what is, why is that necessary? What, what do we need it for? Right? We're asking for physical well-being. We're asking for financial stability. We're asking for our own selfish needs. But ultimately, all those things that we need as individuals are what helps us to fulfill our purpose for the world's existence. And the more material things we amass and we use them in a proper way to serve God, the more validity the world is gaining, the better benefit the world around us has. And so there's nothing that we cannot somehow harness for a higher purpose. And don't feel guilty asking for your personal things for what you personally want as an individual because God created this world to fill it with his glory. And that would be expressed through the physicality, through the mundane aspects of our environment, of our world. And we as human beings are the only creature who possess that ability to actually fulfill the world's purpose through the good deeds we do, through our study of Torah, through the mitzvahs we perform. And until man... And until God created man, until until the sixth day of creation, that purpose was not fulfilled. So we have to understand that this is the purpose of the world's creation, that we utilize all those things that we need for our well-being. And in Rosh Hashanah, when we're celebrating the birthday of the world, we're actually celebrating the birthday of man, of the human being, of Adam and Eve were created on this day. Now, of course, there are many aspects to Rosh Hashanah that I want to go through and going through it just very briefly, but hopefully to uh, to glean the important messages and lessons. We know that Rosh Hashanah is not just the anniversary of man, but because it's the anniversary of the creation of man, it's also the day of our judgment. It's a day when we proclaim God as our king. And just like Adam proclaimed God as king of the universe, so too us on Rosh Hashanah, we are reincarnating God as our king. When we blow the shofar, that's part of the carnation process. It's part of the way that we are crowning God as our king. And carnating God as king means that we accept the will of God. We are subservient to God's will. We recognize that in order for this world to exist, in order for us to fulfill our purpose for why we exist here, we have to follow that mandate, which is the blueprint for the world's creation, the Torah, the mitzvahs that God gives us. Yes, it's a day of prayer. And what's interesting is Rosh Hashanah, like we call it, it's Yom Hadin, a day of judgment. On this day, we know on the very first day that Adam was created, what happened? He committed a sin. 
and he was judged. God says to him, Ayeka, where are you? That question that God asked Adam is a question God asks us every day. It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Where am I today? Where am I holding in my personal development and growth? Have I changed today? Have I become a better person than I was the previous day? And just like Adam was forgiven for the sin of the tree, eating, consuming from the tree of of, of life, the Eitz Hadas, the tree of wisdom, Tov good and evil. Likewise, we ourselves also, God forgives us on this day. Rosh Hashanah teaches us that it is a human thing to err, to make for, to make mistakes. You're not a failure if you get knocked down. Failure is when you stay down. Even a person who stays down, meaning a failure, can also change themselves. So no one is really truly a failure because unlike a human king or human justice, you know, we don't really relate to king so much anymore. So using the concept of human justice in a, union, in a, in a court of law, once the verdict is passed, that decision is usually final. It's hard to get clemency if you were, if, if a person was found guilty by the judge. But not so with God. God is forgiving because God knows when a person's remorse, when a person's teshuva is genuine if it's sincere or not. Of course, a person could shed many tears, rivers of tears before a human judge, and the judge doesn't know. They only know what they see. They know the crime the person committed. But when it comes to God, God knows the truth. God knows when we're truly penitent, when we have really made amends for what we may have done wrong, and God is forgiving. So Hashem said to Adam so long ago, you are assigned to your children. As you were judged before me on this day, and you were you emerged forgiven, so will your children be judged before me on this day and we are granted forgiveness. Of course, also, we know that Yom Kippur became a day of atonement and forgiveness long later. We're talking about the 2,448 years later when the Jews sinned with the golden calf. And that's when Yom Kippur became a day of judgment as well. What else do we do on Rosh Hashanah? We know that interesting thought is Joseph was freed on Rosh Hashanah. You see, people don't know the history, all the things we celebrate on Rosh Hashanah. The prayers that we include, we talk about the, the prayers of not just of Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Hannah were answered in this day. They were blessed that their requests were answered. We know Hannah especially. We read the Haftarah of Hannah on the first day of Rosh Hashanah where she wanted a child so badly and dedicated that child to the service of the temple, to worshiping God. And in that sense, I think if we think about something that we really want, then Rosh Hashanah is a appropriate, a propitious time when our prayers would be answered and our wishes would be granted by God. Joseph, who was freed on Rosh Hashanah, according to tradition, after being incarcerated for 12 years after his incident with Potiphar's wife. So... That, of course, is a tremendous act that he had of self-restraint, where he withstood, where he had self-control and held himself back from committing an inappropriate act, a behavior unbecoming of himself. And in that sense, we could think and learn some powerful lessons from Joseph. To me, Joseph stands as one of the great biblical figures who we could learn a lot of lessons from. And just to point out one or two is, firstly, that event, that incident where Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him and the temptation was strong. You think about someone in Joseph's position where his 
family abandons him. They wanted to kill him. They wind up selling him as a slave. His father thinks he's dead. He's alone in a foreign, distant country and knows nobody. He's working there, finally has a decent job. He's a slave working for Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife is trying to have a moment of fun, of instant gratification with him. And yet, Joseph as tempting as that was. And the Torah describes, when we read it, there's a trup, the musical cantillation. There is, It's a shalshalat, that multi-pronged voice, a, a, a tune, which if I were to translate it to English is, He resisted. Need a little better voice for that. I don't know how it comes through on the radio waves. But the point is, he was deliberating. He was debating whether he should resist this or not. It was a debate. It was a challenge, a struggle for him. And ultimately, he did. And the Medrash says, why? Because he saw the vision of his father. He didn't want to disappoint his father. He also realized, for one moment of instant gratification, what was I to gain in the long term, it's unbecoming of me. It's inappropriate. And we think about one of the powerful lessons we could learn relating to Rosh Hashanah now. We think now that we are better. In fact, I talked about this on last week's show. When you recognize Jewish confession, you know, is somewhat of narrative therapy today uses this modern psychology where they say that a person has to acknowledge and declare the goodness within themselves. Well, last week's portion, we had the Vidoy Meister, the confessional prayer, once said when they would complete giving their tithes and they would say, I'm good and I know it. Because in Judaism, we have to recognize our positive qualities. When you realize indeed that you are good and you tell yourself, I am fantastic, I'm good, then you know that it's unbecoming of you to behave sometimes inappropriately. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes we do fail. Sometimes we, you know, the evil gets the better side of us. But by realizing, by recognizing that indeed we're good, then it's a much better mechanism to prevent us from doing things that are wrong. Another beautiful aspect of Joseph is when he's sitting there in the prison cell, when he could have just minded his own business, when he's joined by fellow inmates who possibly were part of the conspiracy that even got him locked up there because one was the butler, the other was the baker, both were within the cabinet serving Pharaoh. And yet... Joseph greets them so warmly, so nicely. He says, Kunjani Chana, how's it? How's it, Bru? Right, Flo? Yeah. He says, Huchandet Minir. He asks them, how are you doing? In fact, the biblical, the Hebrew words of the Torah is, he asks them, Why do you look downtrodden today? What is it that makes your face look so melancholy, lugubrious, morose? You just look depressed. We can't allow people around us to look downtrodden. We have to try to uplift them, put a smile on their face. And that's exactly what Joseph does. He asks them what's perturbing them. And each one tells them about their sad story of how they were locked away, how they were locked in jail for what they've done. And then they each tell Joseph their dreams and he interprets it for them. And the butler dreams of himself squeezing grapes and the baker dreams of a basket of bread on his head and the birds eating out of it. And Joseph interprets their very similar dreams, but very differently. He tells the butler that his dream will be means he's squeezing the grapes means he'll be reinstated to his position as Pharaoh's butler, as his uh, wine uh, sommelier, whereas the baker will be hanged. 
And one might wonder why similar dreams as they were, were they interpreted so differently by Pharaoh? And I think, again, a very powerful lesson we could learn from Joseph's interpretation. Of course, we know that the Torah says he was able to interpret those dreams because God was with him. What does it mean God was with him? Everything he did, he always attributed it to God. People asked him how it was, Baruch Hashem. We learned the words Baruch Hashem from Joseph. He would always bless God. But I think on a very practical level, Joseph was saying the butler was doing something proactive in his dream. He took those grapes, he squeezed them, he did something. Everyone goes through trouble in their life. We're all, everyone, you know, if you talk to the person sitting next to you, you'll realize everyone's got their own package. Everyone's got their own struggles and challenges. The question is, what do you do about this? And Joseph knew how to inspire and motivate people to do the right thing. And that's why he interpreted those dreams so differently because he said to the butler, you're taking action, you're being proactive, you're squeezing those grapes. That is indicative. It's a sign of success. If somebody just thinks bread is going to land on their head, that's a sign of death. That's just not something that's too passive. That's not the way we can live our lives. And Joseph, who was freed according to tradition, he was emancipated from his incarceration on Rosh Hashanah. I think it's a very appropriate day to celebrate the life of Joseph and to understand that this is something worthwhile celebrating in our lives as well. What else have we got on Rosh Hashanah? There's many things. And in fact, I think I skipped a little bit about the the day preceding Rosh Hashanah. So we talked a little bit about the history of Rosh Hashanah. We talked about the Shabbos before. We talked about how this Shabbos, we don't bless the month, although we do say Tehillim for the coming month. In fact, many people have a custom of adding three chapters of Tehillim every single day until Yom Kippur. We add Psalm 27. Every community does this from Rosh Chodesh Elul all the way through until Hoshana Rabbah. So we do that. And we do bless the month of Elul in the sense of reciting the Tehillim. But on Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah morning, means Wednesday morning you'll be at Shul. There's Hataras Nadarim, which is the annulment of vows. And it's important that we participate in that at any vows we made in the past year. Any vows in general, we shouldn't be making vows. We should be saying things blinader without a vow commitment. But nevertheless, Erev Rosh Hashanah, we do spend a little time in the shul, becoming a Beth Din. It's also an act of Avat Yisrael, of love to our fellow, because sometimes you need patience listening to each person reading that entire prayer. But we do so, and by doing that, we help each other out. We form a Beth Din. We become that Beth Din and do the annulment of vows for our friends. Another thing is that we don't blow the shofar on our Rosh Hashanah. Now, the reason is very simply to separate between the shofar soundings in the month of Elul, which are merely a custom, and sounding, blowing the shofar Rosh Hashanah, which is actually a biblically ordained mitzvah. It's a commandment in the Torah. The Torah itself says, in fact, that is the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah. The Torah itself, the scribes of all the things, you know, you think about Rosh Hashanah, we think about all the wonderful customs and traditions, the apples dipped in honey, and you think about the time you spend in shul and the prayers and all the wonderful things that we do in Rosh Hashanah. But actually the most important thing, or at least the biblically ordained thing, is blowing the shofar. That is the mitzvah of the day. That is the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah. And of course that accomplishes many important, uh, many things are achieved by the blowing of the shofar, and perhaps we'll have some time soon to talk about them. But specifically right now, we're talking about the not blowing the shofar on Erev Rosh Hashanah. And maybe I'll just share with you some insights about that when when we'll be right back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. Well, 
<clears throat> we're talking here about the customs of Rosh Hashanah. I'm sure we could pack up our Kia Sportages with a lot of Rosh Hashanah foods, especially in Santon Central. We will be having Rosh Hashanah dinners and community events. For all those out there who don't have a shul, we don't charge membership fees, so you're most welcome to join us if you are in the Santon Central area. So no need to pay to pray. You could come join us at Santon Central Shul, Chabad's Goodness and Kindness Center, and we'll be having Rosh Hashanah dinners. We'll be having Rosh Hashanah lunches. We'll be having meaningful and purposeful services where we explain what's going on. We start at 8.30, so it's a decent time of starting. And we finish by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. We explain some of the customs throughout the day. We explain the meaning of the prayers. And we also uh, explain the Torah readings and our sermons are short, but it's a participatory service, so everyone is welcome. And as we were going through some of the customs today of Rosh Hashanah, I'm going to continue with that, and maybe we'll get to some of the insights a little after. I'm just going to make a note to myself that I want to talk with you about why we don't blow the show for Arab Rosh Hashanah, but I think someone asked if I could actually rather go through the customs first so that you could mark them off your checklist. So I'm going to try to do that as quickly as I can. No shofar on Wednesday, Erev Rosh Hashanah. So for those women who like to hear the shofar every day as it's a custom, you don't have to worry about it, Erev Rosh Hashanah, and no need to hear the shofar then. The Rosh Hashanah laws and customs, just important to go through a few things. Just like for Shabbos, we light our Shabbos candles. We light candles on both nights of Rosh Hashanah. Now, obviously, on the second night, you have to make sure it's from a pre-existing flame. There are two blessings we make. The first one is, We say, Blessed are you, God, our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to kindle the light of the day of remembrance and Shechianu, which is a blessing of always welcoming in the new year, welcoming in the new season. Now, you when you do that, when you're lighting, when you're making the bracha Shechianu, you have in mind the new fruit on the second night, and we do the same thing during the Shechianu of the Kiddush on the second night. So the person making the Kiddush usually is not the one who lit the candles. It's a different individual. Usually a male makes the Kiddush and a woman lights the candles. So just to have in mind the new fruits that we're going to consume. And speaking of new fruits, we know that there's a new fruit that we eat on the second night after Kiddush. Before washing our hands for bread, we then recite the blessing Bore Priya Eitz. And after that, um, we make the Yehi Ratzon. We ask God that it should be a pleasant and sweet, beautiful year. But we make a blessing on this new fruit before Hamotzi on the second night. There's a greeting that we wish each other when we come home from shul on the first night. That is Lashana Tova Tikasev Vesichasem, or you make it gender specific. May you be inscribed and sealed for a good year. Of course, women will say Lashana Tova Tikatevi Vetechatemi, which is the feminine, and men will say it in the masculine, as I first said a moment ago. What else have we got? Of course, there are symbolic foods for a sweet new year that we eat and enjoy in Rosh Hashanah. So we dip our challah into honey. And in fact, this is a custom that remains all the way until after Sukkot. After the, uh, what else do we do? There's an apple, not just the challah dipped in honey, but we also dip our apples in the honey. We make the blessing Borah Priya 8. And then 
we recite the Yihiratzon. We say, We ask God that this year may it be your will that you should renew for us a year that will be good and sweet. And what I love about the concept of dipping it into honey. Honey comes from a bee. Bees generally sting. And some of us had experienced a few stings in the past year. And we're asking that even if there was a sting, even if there are aspects in our life that are not so pleasant, we ask they should become sweet like honey. And to recognize that even from the stings of life, we still can experience happiness and joy. And that, of course, we talked before about Joseph. Joseph, who was going through a very difficult time in his life, but he was able to find that joy. And I got to tell you from personal experience, sometimes the best recipe I've found to bring joy into your own life is when you put a smile on someone else's face. So if you're ever feeling down, if you're ever downtrodden on your own, you're just not in the mood, put a smile on someone else's face. Ask someone else how they're doing. And you'll see how it will uplift your own mood as well. One of the customs throughout Rosh Hashanah for that reason is that we avoid sour or stinging kind of foods because we want to focus on sweetness. Of course, I don't think the foods you're eating are going to make your year a sour year, but it's a symbolism that we want a sweet year. And that's why it's a custom, a beautiful minhag, a Jewish tradition that we eat sweet things, sweet foods, and certainly not sour or stinging foods, nothing too spicy on Rosh Hashanah. Some of the people eat carrots. Carrots in Yiddish is merin. It means to multiply. They say it's a good omen for good vision. That's why rabbits eat carrots and they don't even need glasses. Of course, many other customs and traditions. You may have heard Rabbi Katz talking about them yesterday. Heads of a fish or a lamb. Because as we say, we should be for a head, not for a tail for the year. Another interesting thing is not to eat nuts. The Hebrew word for nuts is egos. And it has the same numerical value as the Hebrew word for sin, which is chet. So just like to remind you, when I was studying in the kolel, Rabbi Heller told us that you have to remember that nuts aren't a sin. Sin is a sin. So this is a, a symbolic tradition to avoid, uh, to avoid consuming nuts to prevent us from committing sins. But the nuts themselves aren't the sin. It's the sin that's a sin. So don't turn the nuts into a sin. If for whatever reason there's nuts in the plate, you don't have to make a whole big spiel. You could turn it into a conversation and say, you know, there's a wonderful custom people have not to eat nuts because egos, the Hebrew word for nuts, is grammatria, same in America, value 17 as chet. But I will also tell you that the word tov, good, is also the numerical value 17. So perhaps if a person has been bogged down by chet, by sins, numerical value 17 over the past year, remember you can transform even the most debased, lowest sins into good. Not that you should commit sins to be good, but even a person who has committed, as long as you're determined to make a change in your life, genuinely, sincerely, you certainly can and transform the negative, the chet, into good because they both have that same numerical value. Chalas that we eat in Rosh Hashanah are symbolically round because round is the cycle, symbolizes the cycle of life. So we eat round chalas for this entire period from Rosh Hashanah all the way through Simchas Torah. And um, what else? Pomegranates. I can't forget pomegranates. 
Pomegranates is a year full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate's full of seeds. By the way, in our remaining 10 minutes, if you want to share with me any of your wonderful traditions and customs that I could share with our listeners, please don't hesitate. Feel free to send an, a WhatsApp to 062-148-2374, or you could SMS it into the studio 34519, and I'll be glad to share your customs. And somebody just shared one with me, one that I shouldn't forget, besides for consuming pomegranates and all the wonderful things we talked about carrots and heads of fish and lambs and all these other lovely things is the one where some people have a tradition to eat lettuce, raisins, and celery. And they also say a special prayer while they consume it. You know what they say? God, That this year we should let us have a raise in our celery. And so they eat lettuce, raisins, and celery. I think that's a cool one, hey? Well, we got a lot more to talk about. And let me just check with, have we got another flow? Do we have another commercial break that we got? Oh, okay. Commercial break. Just want I want to share with you a few more wonderful traditions and customs, and we'll share them with you when we're right back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. And welcome back. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievan. We're going to go through a few more points about Rosh Hashanah and some of the wonderful traditions that we have on this beautiful holiday. So... The most important part of the day that we discussed earlier is the blowing of the shofar. When we come to shul, in fact, we hear not just 10 blasts as we do on a regular day throughout the month of Elul, but there's a total of 130 shofar blasts that are blown. Not some people only do 100, but the there is a Kabbalistic tradition to do 130 blasts. I want to share with you a little bit about the neshama, understanding the difference between the sounds that we hear. And here's one idea, according to the mystics, the first sound, the which is the tekiah, the long sound, that's like a pure, unadulterated sound. And that reflects the perfect beginning of time in Ganeda and in paradise before there ever even was sin, as we discussed earlier Adam committed a sin on his very first day in this world. The second sound that we blast is the teruah. What is the teruah? That is three broken sounds. And this is more like a, a mournful tune, a tune, a song, a, a sound of, of, of mourning, of exile, the Jews of diaspora. And it cries of interrupted and inconsistent service of God. We think about our ups and our downs of love, of awe, of our faith. And of course, we understand that we have days where things are going well and things aren't going so well. And this sound perhaps is the mouthpiece for those who know too much pain. There's no energy left. They're exhausted and perhaps no willpower to blow on and hindered maybe by the trials of life from without, from within. People have lost their breath the perfect world reflected in the sound of the tekiah, the, the uninterrupted single blast, is not lost forever. We know Mashiach is on the way. Good times are to come. And then we come to the third sound. And that is called the teruah. The teruah, that is those nine staccato broken sounds. And then we conclude back to the tekiah, which is a powerful finale, 
and even more perfect than the first tekiah because we conclude with a tekiah gedola with a long one. It's sort of telling us good days are coming. And we know that when Mashiach comes, the prophet Isaiah tells us on that day there would be yitoka b'shofar gadol, there will be a great tekiah sounded from the great shofar. So the teruah, this difficulty is going to disappear. The difficult days will be no more. And it's interesting, though, you noticed that before we blow the tekiahs, before we blow the shofar sounds, the chazan recites the words, which means, I'm fortunate, praised is the people, the nation, who know the sound, how to blow the teruah, that broken sound. But perhaps... I could conclude today's discussion with another way of understanding it. What does it mean fortunate is the nation that knows, that fully appreciates this unique sound of the Torah? You see, the Torah tells us that we have to blow a Torah, this broken sound from our shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The Torah, this broken sounding blast, resembles a cry. It's a broken cry. And this commandment is actually defined in three places, three different places in the Torah. And the Talmud understands that this repetition that we do, the teruah, implies that we have to hear three teruahs. And the Talmud also understands from the verses that each teruah must have a simple unbroken blast, that the tekiah, before it and afterwards. The Torah requires that we blow nine blasts, nine blasts, nine teruahs. Because the teruah, which has a few different meanings, it could mean, you know, uh, short blasts, similar to how perhaps somebody's sobbing in a tragic situation, or it could mean three somewhat longer blasts, similar to perhaps how someone is crying when they're going through certain worries. Another possibility is both of these together. And that's why we do we do the Shvarim and the Teruah, or Shvarim Teruah as they call it. So to make sure that we cover all the different types of blasts, that's why we do the different the different um the different blasts in order to fulfill that obligation. But considering the the remaining amount of time, the purpose and the message is that throughout the Musaf prayer we recite three themes. There's Malchiot, where we acknowledge God's kingship and sovereignty over the whole world. We accept God's dominion. And that's perhaps represented by the Tekiah. The second theme of the Musaf is Zichronos, where we, where we proclaim our faith in divine providence and divine remembrance in the concept of reward and punishment. And that is in the true, in the Shvarim, where we have our challenges. And the third one is Shofrut. That is represented by the Trua. It's about the power of the call of the Shofar, that we accept the yoke of God, the yoke of the Torah, as if it were given to us when God gave it to us on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied with the sound of the Shofar. And so, after each of these parts of the Musaf Amida, we blow the Shofar, we remind ourselves about our commitment to God, just as we accepted the Torah 3,328 years ago, and just as God created us 7,778 years ago, we once again 
here on Rosh Hashanah, when we blow the shofar, perhaps it's also a reminder of the trumpets that we sounded then when we proclaim the kingship, when we proclaim God as our king. And so the shofar reminds us also about our teshuva, that we have to awaken ourselves to return in on these days of Rosh Hashanah. I think there's a lot more to talk about, but it's time to say goodbye. So my friends, I wish you all a wonderful, meaningful and purposeful Shabbos and a sweet new year. And perhaps you could take some time, go to your favorite Jewish website or wherever you can study with a shir and learn some of the other important, important customs of Rosh Hashanah. Don't forget about the Tashlich and about the other special customs that we have on this wonderful holiday, welcoming and embracing a fabulous new year ahead. Shana Tova, my friends, and Carpe Diem, seize the moment.